Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. Following last week's deep dive into the effect that the Iron Duke, the Duke of Wellington, had on the guards, we are taking another book off the shelf in the museum library to hear about the experiences of another guardsman. Not a general this time, but someone from a middle-class background that volunteered in the Second World War. He joined as a guardsman, but was soon selected to become an officer. His name was Derek Bond, and he was a reasonably successful actor in the 50s and 60s, but never quite made the grade with television and the big screen. He won a military cross in North Africa and ended up as a prisoner of war in Stalag 7A in Bavaria. He was rather stuck between two worlds, insofar as he was considered not quite posh enough for the guards, but too posh for television. His book is entitled Steady On Old Man, Don't You Know There's a War On? It's a great read, and I will share with you some of his recollections, which I think are well observed and rather well described. He was born in 1920, so was just 19 when war was declared. He'd wanted to be a reporter, and he attended Pittman's Secretarial College to study shorthand and typing. But when his father discovered he was spending more time chatting up his almost entirely female classmates, he was swiftly removed and set on a different path in the rather musty world of merchant banking as a very junior clerk. Derek said he liked wearing sharp city suits with a flower in his lapel, but he simply didn't like the work. Around this time, he followed his mother's passion for amateur dramatics and joined the Finchley Amateur Dramatic Society. To his surprise, he was given a modest part in a production of Richard of Bordeaux and did rather well. His newfound success treading the boards went straight to his head as he quit the boring but reliably remunerated world of banking for the very uncertain future in the theatre. He did a variety of menial jobs as assistant stage manager and was understudying lead players who were boringly healthy and for whom he was never required to stand in. So when, in September 1939, war was declared, young Bond took up the rather romantic notion of enlisting to fight. He describes a rather rigid class system at the time. He writes, Out of the woodwork of our society emerged a number of people who couldn't wait to get into uniform and boss the rest of the nation around. Some years later, in the real emergency, many of them showed tremendous courage as air raid wardens, firemen and nurses. But at first, the uniforms rather went to the heads of lower middle class people who had hitherto been disadvantaged by a rigidly class-ridden society. For a short time, the blessed English sense of humour and anarchical rejection of authority faltered. Without a doubt, air raid wardens were the worst and made themselves extremely unpopular in forcing the blackout. One, at least, got his comeuppance. It was in Old Compton Street in Soho. A warden spotted some light shining from a first-floor window. He rang the bell, keeping his finger firmly pressed on it until the door opened to reveal a somewhat breathless, very busty blonde wearing nothing but a diaphanous negligee and a feather boa. Yes, dearie, what can I do for you? With some difficulty, the warden shifted his gaze from her ample bosom. Madam, there's a little chink at your window. Little chink be buggered. That's the Japanese ambassador. 
Paradoxically, one of the most difficult things to do in September 1939 was to join the forces. None of the services wanted recruits at first because the nation was so woefully unprepared for war. After several unsuccessful attempts at recruiting centres, I settled for being a stretcher bearer in Hampstead. After rapid courses in first aid, we spent night after night on standby, sleeping in unheated school gymnasiums in the bitter cold waiting for Hitler to strike. This was the phony war, and it was extremely boring. It wasn't to last. In October, there was a BBC announcement of typical pomposity, saying that there were vacancies for men of the right height standard and age 20 or over in the Brigade of Guards. I wasn't 20 until January, but I decided to lie about my age and apply for a vacancy. Ever since, I had slept all night in the Mall in 1935 to have a front place for the procession on the occasion of King George V's Silver Jubilee. I had developed an obsession about the Brigade of Guards. I didn't just admire their precision at drill, but I had read book after book about the First World War and the Guards' valiant part in it. I wanted to be a Guardsman very much. Derek goes on to describe the demanding nature of basic training and how much of a shock it was to the average person's system to be put through such a physically and mentally demanding course of training at the guards' depot in Caterham. He was a bright guy and his quick mind soon came to the attention of those in command. Inevitably, there came the day when he was asked if he would like to become an officer. He writes, Of course, I had no experience of military life apart from playing a rally in Journey's End at the Colchester Repertory. I think subconsciously, I gave my rally performance on the parade ground. I certainly didn't impress our squad sergeant, but possibly it brought me to the attention of the company commander. He sent for me. Bond, ever thought of applying for a commission? It seemed a most attractive proposition. At least it was a way to escape the hardships of life in the guards as another rank. What's more, I confess, I was a terrible little snob and I felt I truly belonged to the officer class. Well, sir, I'd like to try for it. That's the spirit. But you'll have to work damned hard. I'll see you're transferred to brigade squad. Before one could attend Sandhurst, one had to pass what they called brigade squad, which was supposed to prepare would-be guards officers for their journey through the college. The training was tough and the instructors were, without exception, complete and unsympathetic bastards. He describes two of them who never missed an opportunity to sharpen their knives on each other when it came to regimental pride. He writes, Brigade squads were formed specially for potential officers. I was in the second one ever formed. This meant that after four weeks of back-breaking recruit training, I had to go right back to square one and start all over again with the newly formed squad. What is more, the squad sergeant, one Lance Sergeant Dennis, made it quite clear that he was going to make life hell for us. If you lot of bleeders think you're good enough to be officers, you will have to be the best bleeding squad ever to pass out. That is, if you ever do pass out. I think the next couple of months were among the toughest of my five and a half year service. It was only made tolerable by the spirit that developed amongst my fellow sufferers. The majority of the squad were destined for commissions in the brigade, and their background reflected that. Furthermore, they were from all five regiments rather than just from the Coldstream, as in my previous squad. This caused some complications with the teaching of regimental history at Shining Parades. I'd had it drummed into me that the Coldstream Guard's motto, Nullae Secundus, 
meant exactly what it said, that the Coldstream was second to none and stood on the left of the parade on all occasions because they declined to stand second in line to the Grenadiers who had the arrogance to call themselves the first regiment of foot guards. On any occasion when all five regiments are on parade, the order is Grenadiers on the right, then the Scots, Irish, Welsh and the Coldstream on the left. That is why the white plumes on Grenadier bearskins are on the left and the red plumes of the Coldstream are on the right. A Grenadier sergeant gave a talk at Shining Parade to the Grenadier recruits. He told them they were formed from Lord Wentworth's regiment of foot, some of whom fled to France with Charles II after the defeat of the Royalist forces by Cromwell. The Coldstream were formed from General Monk's regiment of foot. General Monk was captured by Cromwell and imprisoned in the Tower. Then, as the Grenadier sergeant put it, he turned bloody traitor, didn't he? He joined the new fucking model army under Oliver fucking Cromwell. This did not go down well without Lance Sergeant Dennis, who was a Coldstreamer. Hold on, hold on. Who marched his bleeding regiment all the way down from fucking Coldstream and the borders to put down riots in London after Cromwell? Who put King fucking Charles II back on the throne? This was true, but General Monk was ordered by the King to march his regiment to Tower Hill, where they laid down their arms in the name of the new model army, and then took them up again in the name of the King. The Grenadiers, of course, claim that the Coldstream regimental history only legitimately dates from the taking up of arms. But I must confess to you, this new slant on regimental history of the Coldstream Guards rather strained my loyalty. As an incurable romantic, I thought myself as a cavalier rather than a roundhead. So having gone through the rigours of brigade squad, the potential officer cadets got to their final parade and pulled out all the stops to deliver a perfect show. The result wasn't quite what young Bond was expecting. He writes, Eventually the long-awaited day came and our squad took the square for our final parade. We surpassed ourselves and even Paddy Lee Furmore marched correctly. As the Commandant left the parade ground, the final accolade came from the tyrannical Lance Sergeant Dennis. I wouldn't bloody well have believed it, but you are now guardsmen. We all puffed ourselves up with pride, and it was then that the blow fell. The whole squad was to have leave before reporting as officer cadets to Sandhurst. The whole squad, that is, except Bond, Waller and Baron de Halden. The whole of the rest of the squad were candidates for the foot guards regiments. We weren't, so we were unceremoniously packed off to Purbright, the Coldstream Guards training battalion. It was a shattering blow. Clearly someone in the Guards' hierarchy had a very bad conscience about it, because when we arrived at Purbright Camp, our company commander sent for us and told us that we were still definitely considered to be potential officers and would be given fairly light duties until room could be found for us at Sandhurst. He kept his word and we had a very cushy few weeks doing practically nothing except going into Woking each evening to have a hot bath and play poker in a friendly pub. It seemed a pretty useless way of spending the war, so we were very relieved after about three weeks to be sent belatedly to Sandhurst. Life at Sandhurst was much more to Bond's liking where he did rather well, and towards the end of his training he was summoned by his company commander, Major Johnny Goshen, later to become 3rd Viscount Goshen. Bond writes, Most officer cadets were riddled with insecurity, especially those of us who had no family military backup. 
Having experienced the Gars Depot and enjoying the comparative luxury of Sandhurst, the thought of being RTU'd, that is, returned to unit, was nightmarish. I was extremely nervous, therefore, when Major Goshen asked to see me after his company orders one day. What had I done wrong? Now, young Bond, have you ever thought about a regiment? Of course I had, but there were problems. Around that time, every distinguished regiment had a waiting list of possible candidates, and without some kind of pull or family influence, the chances were slim. There were also financial problems. Even in the early 1940s, it was necessary to have a private income to be an officer in a smart regiment. In my personal situation, I had become resigned to accepting whatever posting came up. Uh, well, uh, no, sir, I'm afraid I haven't. Leaving it a bit late, aren't you? I know, sir, but... Would you like to be a grenadier? I gawped at him in astonishment. My experience after passing out from Caterham had convinced me that to be a guards officer was totally outside my reach. Uh, of course, you might need a small private income to start with. Do you think you could find that? I could speak to my father, sir. Why don't you do that? I think you'd make a good grenadier. Bond talks of the characters who trained him at Sandhurst with more than a little affection, for as every officer who has passed through Sandhurst knows, the senior NCOs at Sandhurst are indeed a breed apart. He writes, At the guard's depot I have become rather disillusioned by the behaviour of the officers and the NCOs. At Sandhurst it was a very different matter. All regiments send the pick of their officers and NCOs to the Royal Military College, perhaps out of long-term self-interest, who knows. Later in my career, I began to suspect that the depot became the dumping ground for personnel who were not very popular with service battalions and not quite bright enough for the staff. The senior NCO at Sandhurst was the regimental sergeant major, RSM Bosom Brand. He was a very big man, both physically and in personality. He was feared and respected by the cadets, NCOs and junior officers alike. He had built up for himself a reputation for X-ray vision on parade. He did this by the simple ruse of noticing, say, for example, a rifle safety catch not applied in the third row of a company on parade. He would then say nothing until he was some distance away, facing the front rank, then shout, that man in the fourth from the left in the rear rank, take his name, idle on parade, safety catch not applied. He never tired of his traditional joke when briefing new cadets. You will at all times address your NCO instructors as staff. You will address me as sir. I will also address you gentlemen as sir. Do I make myself clear? You sir me sir, and I'll sir you sir. See sir? I was in C Company, and our company sergeant major was a splendid man called Croucher, also a grenadier. Something about him made him look as if he'd stepped straight out of the Victorian era. He was terribly erect, as if he had a steel rod inserted up through his backside instead of a spine. He had great dignity, and I only saw him disconcerted once. Cadets went on parade in alphabetical order, and I stood next to Richard Buckle, destined for the Scots Guards. He joined up straight from Oxford, where he had produced a much-praised book on poetry. One morning, Company Sergeant Major Croucher stopped behind him while inspecting us for adjutant's parade. Mr Buckle, sir, get your hair cut. You look like a bloody poet. But, staff, I am a poet. 
Crouch's mouth opened and shut like a stranded goldfish, and then he moved away without further comment. Bond was commissioned into the 3rd Battalion of the Grenadier Guards, and he found life in the officers' mess to be less stuffy than he was expecting, with some very amusing fellow officers, albeit unintentionally. He writes, Being an actor was a great help here. Many of the older officers were regular theatre-goers, and some of them seemed to envy me. You must know a lot of pretty girls, mustn't you? It was when my contemporaries discussed officers in line regiments that I became uneasy. They referred to them as Charlie officers, and I had a nasty feeling that my background could be described as somewhat Charlie. Perhaps that's why I spent most of the evenings in the mess with more senior officers listening with fascination to their regimental stories. Some were clearly apocryphal, some based on truth, but all were fascinating. They gave me an impression of the Brigade of Guards that no other regimental histories could ever do. Before the war, the 3rd Battalion here at Wellington Barracks were performing London duties, that is, Buckingham Palace and St James's Palace Guard and the Bank of England Picket. A Japanese major who was the military attaché at the Japanese Embassy was a guest of the battalion for a week. One evening, he was sitting alone in a corner of the mess when a grenadier major noticed him. Poor little bugger, nobody talking to him. Ought to make him feel at home. He moved across to the Japanese and towered kindly over him. Evening. Japanese, aren't you? The poor little bugger smiled, revealing vast tombstone teeth. Yes, yes, indeed. Japanese. He attempted to rise, but the grenadier thrust him back into his chair and sat beside him. Thought so. Haven't you fellows in Japan got someone called Tojo? Yes, yes, General Tojo, our Prime Minister. A fine man. Of course, of course. You know, I had a polo pony once called Tojo. Frightful brute. Had to shoot him, you know. The officer then stood up, smiled benignly, and wandered off, his work done. Life in the battalion based in Windsor was fairly boring but he recounts one instance when life was more interesting than perhaps he would have preferred. He writes, During his very short reign, Edward VIII had built a small airfield at Smith's Lawn in Windsor Great Park. It was decided to keep it in good order in case it was needed in an emergency concerning the royal family, who spent a lot of their time during that period at Windsor. It was very heavily camouflaged with collapsible barns and haystacks made of canvas, these were supported by fine wire cables so that the airfield could be prepared for use in a matter of minutes. A platoon of guardsmen was permanently on guard, based in an old cricket pavilion used as a guardroom. It was commanded by an ensign who was billeted in the mews of Cumberland Lodge. I was very excited when my turn came, because it was my first command on my own as an officer. My 48-hour tour happened to fall at a weekend. Viscount Fitzalan and his family were living at the lodge at the time, and I was invited to dinner on Saturday night. The Duke and Duchess of Beaufort were staying for the weekend, and there were a lot of young people with them. We all played party games after dinner, with everyone cheating outrageously. As I got back to my little muse room, I fell into a very deep sleep, fully dressed, of course, in case of an air raid. There was one. The field telephone wrote me with a warning of an impending raid and no sooner had I reached my bicycle than enemy aircraft droned overhead. 
A stick of bombs came whistling down, and the noise of the explosions was too close for comfort. I cycled like a man possessed towards the cricket pavilion, completely forgetting the steel wires connected to the camouflage. One caught me smartly under the nose and threw me off. Undaunted, I remounted with my nose pouring with blood and made it to the pavilion. The sergeant looked at me with concern. Sir, you've been hit. Nosebleeds aren't. What's the damage? Couple of the men are a bit shaken, sir. Two large craters behind the pavilion and one suspected unexploded bomb. I made my report on the telephone to the barracks and then we started searching for the unexploded bomb hole. It was a pitch black night and we couldn't use strong lights because the raid was still officially on. Soon after dawn, the adjutant rang and seemed very agitated. Found that damn bomb yet? No, sir. We'll take some men off searching and get them cleaned up. The king is coming to see the damage. But, sir, never question orders. Get them cleaned up, and if they are not immaculate, you'll be the picket officer for the next month. This was a dire threat. The picket officer was what is more commonly described as the battalion orderly officer, responsible for making inventories of stores, taking punishment parades and other boring tasks. It had been teeming with rain all night, and the men were covered in mud from the search. Frantically, we cleaned ourselves up and looked fairly smart by the time the king arrived in a large army humber, with the commandant and the adjutant following behind. I gave the order to present arms and saluted so energetically that I started my nosebleed again. The adjutant glared at me and told me to fall out. After inspecting the craters, the king climbed back into the humber and drove across Smith's lawn to return to the castle. The sergeant and I had just resumed the search when there was an almighty explosion and we were both thrown on our backs. The bomb had gone off directly between the wheel tracks of the king's car. Ten minutes earlier and we would have had Queen Elizabeth II in 1940. Travelling around to social events was hard in the war as the use of petrol in cars was frowned upon for such frivolities. Bond observes... An army order had been issued that all officers, up to the rank of brigadier, would learn how to ride motorcycles, and brigadiers and upwards would learn how to ride pillion. This order had the effect of filling hospital beds and accelerating promotion. Timothy and I set out with a sergeant from the transport company to a social event and raced through Windsor Great Park to the party. Unfortunately, we also raced back. We had all three had a very good party and travelled back at an average speed of 80 miles an hour. As we came out of the park through Queen Anne's Gate, we were about to turn into Sheet Street, where Victoria Barracks were. I was too fuddled to remember that I was riding a matchless, which had the reverse gear change position to a Norton motorbike, which I had been used to riding. In an attempt to change down to reduce speed, I actually re-engaged top gear. I drove slap into the wall. A split second before the impact, I raised my hands in horror and fell off. The impetus still carried me into the wall. The motorbike was a total write-off, but I was very lucky indeed to get away with a badly torn muscle in my right leg and the loss of a front tooth, which went through my lower lip and broke off. I was carried into the officer's mess, bleeding profusely from the mouth, and a quick-thinking mess sergeant brought me a large brandy for shock before the adjutant arrived and smelt my breath. After several weeks in hospital, I went to a thoroughly incompetent dentist who crowned my tooth 
without detecting that the root was deeply fractured. One day, when I was just about to mount the castle guard in Windsor, I thought I detected a slight movement in it. I stood on the square in front of the guard, and RSM Robinson came up to me and gave me his highly dramatic salute. Castle guard, ready to march off, sir. I acknowledged his salute and drew myself up to give the commands. I had taken note of the RSM's decibel level and had developed quite a respectable volume myself. Castle guard, shun! My tooth shot out from my mouth and onto the parade ground. I did a neat taking up arms motion and recovered it before proceeding. Castle guard, slope arms, I lisped. The guardsmen's faces were a picture. I marched the castle guards through the Henry VIII gateway into the castle yard and halted them in front of the old guard. New guard, right dress. New guard, present arms. The drummer boys blew the salutes on their bugles and the officer of the old guard and I took three sharp paces towards each other and he handed me the keys. I smiled at him, opening my mouth to reveal my yawning gap. Poor man corpse with laughter. As a young platoon commander, he had come to love the mixed bag of men that made up his platoon, number four platoon. However, he was selected to become the commander of the demonstration platoon at the battle school in the Trossachs in Scotland. He was devastated. So he asked if he could take his own platoon with him rather than command a group he knew nothing about. To his amazement and delight, the brigade commander agreed. So they set off for Scotland where he installed his unorthodox but resourceful platoon in a nearby hotel and went to see the commandant of the battle school. Bond goes on. The commandant said, Derek, I'm glad you won your battle, but you and your platoon have one hell of a task ahead of you. Most of my instructors have come from the battle school at Barnard Castle and they're going to put you through the toughest training you've ever experienced for the next few weeks before the first course arrives. Put us through it, they certainly did, and I knew the guardsmen were cursing me for getting them into it. At the end of our training, we were unbelievably fit. Colonel Algie was delighted and gave the platoon what he called a week off. This week off was in fact nothing less than a one-platoon exercise. We marched with full equipment from Calendar to Killin and bivouacked in the pouring rain by the side of Loch Tay. Halfway through the week, I was invited to a cocktail party by the local laird, the eccentric Lord Bredelbane. Look here, Bond, have your men been after my salmon? Good heavens, no, sir, guardsmen don't poach. As I returned to the platoon bivouac area, apparently earlier than expected, I smelt a delicious aroma of cooking. Sergeant Lovett hastily interposed himself between me and an enormous bonfire which the men were crowding around. Evening, sir. Now in the Grenadiers, the word sir is almost a language of its own. The Grenadiers, for instance, are not allowed to say yes, sir, like lesser regiments. There was something about Sergeant Lovett's sir that sounded remarkably to my trained ears, like please bugger off, sir. I returned the salute and brushed past him. Guardsman Fox, a gypsy, was just recovering a second long brick-like piece of clay from the embers of the bonfire, and as he broke it open, 
a smell of unbelievably ambrosial beauty filled the air. He had got two enormous salmon, wrapped them in a carefully selected variety of herb leaves, packed them in clay from the lockside and pushed them into the heart of the fire. Sergeant, have these salmon been poached? I asked. No, bait, sir. I shall never forget the taste of that salmon. By now the 3rd Battalion was in North Africa and Bond talks about how his guardsmen interacted with the local community. He writes, The Arabs were very friendly and crowded round us with live chickens held by the feet and tiny eggs which they would sell for service cigarettes. The children looked like little brown angels with great saucer eyes and gleaming white teeth. Their looks were deceptive as they were the most accomplished little thieves. One guardsman took off his boots, gaiters and trousers to have a dump behind a bush, carefully taking his rifle with him. Two minutes later, he came round the bush to find no trousers, no gaiters and no boots. Our next major halt was at a place called Satif, and here an enterprising Arab had set up a mobile brothel, which was supervised by the military police and a medical officer. There was a queue stretching for yards and the girls were regularly examined by the M.O. How soldiers could get any kicks out of activities of this kind was utterly beyond me. It was said there were some Arab girls who would do anything for a spare pair of ammunition boots and the story goes that one guardsman struck such a deal. However, the girl refused to show any emotion during the act. When the intercourse started, he was pleasantly surprised to find that she responded to him by putting both arms around him, then one leg, and then the other. He then glanced over his shoulder to find she was actually trying on the boots. But his war service wasn't all beer and skittles. Events took a turn for the worse as they advanced towards Tunis. His platoon came under fire from two German Spandau machine guns firing tracer bullets, so Bond led his platoon in a classic right-flanking battle drill straight out of the manual at the nearest Spandau. What he hadn't bargained for was the presence of another gun emplacement called a silent section, which waited to ambush them with fire from their flank. They opened fire, and Bond writes, Suddenly I felt as though I'd been hit with a sledgehammer in my left thigh. Apparently I yelled out with surprise and indignation, I've been hit! I fell to the ground and immediately Garsman Pollard a very brave young soldier, jumped up and came to my help. He was killed instantly with a bullet through his back. Remembering my training, I rolled downhill, clutching my tommy gun to my chest, into a wadi, the bed of a dried-up stream. The rest of my section were already there, and two of them had been hit. Corporal Perdue's toes on one foot were badly shot, and Guardsman Rigby had the whole of one ankle shattered and was in considerable pain. The corporal cut off my left trouser leg and a tommy gun magazine fell out of my pocket. After he had put a first field dressing on my considerable wound, only partially covering it, he picked up the magazine and showed it to me. A bullet had gone through the guide rib of the magazine and chipped the base of one of the bullets. One millimetre more and I would have been a goner. By the time Joshua Rowley found us, the Germans were putting up flares. There was no point in losing any more men. We'd done our job. I gave Joshua the order to take the rest of the patrol and move out as fast as they could back to our transport. 
They were to wait for us there for no more than half an hour. If we hadn't appeared by then, they were to return to the battalion. If we couldn't make it back that night, the three of us would lie up during the day and would then try to make it back to the Medjen Rose the following night. Joshua protested, but I was insistent. Like me, he realised the chances of our not being taken prisoner were slim. The flares were getting nearer, so, very reluctantly, he moved off. As the three of us started to crawl down the wadi, I can remember worrying more about the filthy Tunisian mud getting into my wound than any pain. After we crawled about a mile, I had lost so much blood that all I wanted to do was go to sleep. Rigby was barely conscious, and we were suffering terrible pain. Corporal Purdue took charge. He decided to see if he could make it to a farm to get help. He told us not to move. Not that either of us had the ability to. He then set off hobbling with his wounded toes to cover more than one and a half miles to the farm. Both Rigby and I had lost consciousness by the time he returned, leading a mule. How he did it I shall never know, but somehow he managed to rouse us enough to get us onto the beast's back. It was then that I felt the greatest pain for the first time. The poor creature was so underfed that its backbone was like the edge of a saw cutting into my balls. By the time we reached the farm, the corporal too was very weak from pain. Hardly surprising, as he'd walked about four and a half miles with shattered toes. The farmer and his wife were very tense and nervous, but who could blame them with the Germans searching for us so close? The farmer plied us with brandy, while his wife ripped up sheets to bandage our wounds and attempt to splint Rigby's foot. Then the farmer lent us a horse and cart, driven by a syphilitic Arab, with a running open saw where his nose should have been. As he helped me into the farm cart, his hands touched my bandages. This preyed on my mind for several months. We then set off for the main Medjes Tunis road at a fast clip. Perju and I sitting up next to the driver with our Tommy guns at the ready and poor Rigby rolling about in agony in the back of the cart as it bumped over rocks and ruts. Just as we were approaching the road, we spotted men lying either side of a ditch. The corporal and I came up into the aim. Don't shoot, it's us. It was Joshua Rowley and Sergeant Lovett and a few guardsmen who had volunteered to see if they could find us. God bless them. Bond's thigh wound was treated at an advanced dressing station where they cut away all the torn flesh from either side of the wound, then gave it a liberal sprinkling of sulfanilamide powder before encasing the leg from hip to ankle in plaster of Paris. The wound refused to heal an infection set in. Eventually, he was evacuated back to England, where he underwent an emergency operation to address the infection and to start a series of skin grafts to patch the huge hole in his thigh. He was awarded the Military Cross for his participation in this particular action. Once healed, he was unfit for active service, but he was fit enough to become a very useful instructor at Sandhurst, where his operational experience was highly sought after. He was to rejoin the 3rd Battalion in 1944 in Italy, but was soon taken prisoner and sent to Stalag 7A, where he remained until he was liberated and repatriated on VE Day 1945. I am recording this podcast on the 75th anniversary of VE Day, so it seems an appropriate place to close. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about a remarkable young Guards officer. 
undoubtedly intelligent and brave, though perhaps not typical in every regard. Next week we will look at the Crimean and Sudan campaigns, and I will talk about some more characters who served in those two places. Do please click the subscribe button to this podcast, and perhaps leave a rating, ideally a good one, because that helps us out. Should you wish to support our work here at the museum, go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and look for the Support Us button. Or you can go straight to our donations page at justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum support. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been Episode 7 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next week, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down, and get away. Thank you.